Bloody Elbow presents the Level Change Podcast, the combat sports variety show that brings you analysis, fight announcements, and insightful discussion of MMA's biggest headlines. Paid Bloody Elbow Podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content, if available, at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here are your hosts, Steffi Haynes and Victor Rodriguez. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to episode 282 of the Level Change Podcast. I'm Steffi Haynes, and I'm joined, as always, by my amazing co-host, Victor Rodriguez. And today, we'll be taking a look back at UFC 298. We're going to take a look forward at UFC Mexico. And later on, we have an interview with Josie Reisman, who happens to be the unauthorized biographer of Vince McMahon. Victor got like a 40-minute interview with her, so you will get that. And it will be free, because guess what today is? It's free episode day. Victor, are you excited? I am. I really am. It was such a fun interview to do. Josie is such a fun person to talk to. And I really think that this is instrumental for a lot of people who aren't exactly, you know, you might know a bit about Vince McMahon, right? Because he's kind of a major media figure. But there's so much to learn and glean from here and a lot to go towards the understanding of why some of these recent problems that he's been finding himself in have been of such great concern how consistent this is with who he's been for years. But yes, this is a this you absolutely are being spoiled by having this one free because there's a lot to parse, a lot to uh, chew on, and I really hope you guys enjoy it. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. But right now, we're going to talk about UFC 298 a little bit. And uh let's let's get into the the top fight here. Ilya Topuria dispatching old man Volkanovsky. And when I say old man, I'm using that in quotes because of the whole spiel that Volkanovsky did in the week leading up to UFC 298, where he, you know, put on the glasses and he he lived the part of his parody. And um, man, you know what? In practice, Ilya was like lightning. And to and uh, excuse me, and Volkanovsky was definitely the slower guy, and not the most powerful guy in there either. Volkanovsky lived off his boxing. He kept people at bay. Maybe he wasn't knocking everybody out, but he was dominating his fights. And he was a good champion for several years, defended several times, never said no to his detriment. The ultimate company guy, well-loved, stayed out of trouble, never said anything over the top, never did anything over the top, and gave 1,000% in the cage, win or lose. He was an excellent champion. And he was toppled by a guy that many believe is intentionally mimicking Conor McGregor. And maybe he is emulating him somewhat, but there are some things that he are out of his control 
that are still happening that kind of put him in Connor's footsteps. But anyways, let's talk about the fight. Victor, how did it make you feel? I was crushed for Alex, but I was thrilled for Ilya. You know, if anybody's going to be out here putting the screws to Alex, it's nice to have it be someone who was talented and hungry and deserving and who did all the work, scouted him properly, saw how he was able to uh, put Alex in trouble by backing him up against the fence and made him pay. And um, it's not, you know, you, I've noticed a few people bring this up. This is a, something that had been exploited to a lesser degree before. Ilya just had better pressure, it seems. It seems like he was just able to mix things up enough. And Alex was not, uh, this wasn't a one-sided drubbing. Alex was giving it to him. He started off as his usual, at his usual pace and was able to do rather well. He was looking pretty good there for a good minute. But everybody gets figured out. It's the same thing I say every time, man. It just you you have so much tape of yourself out there. At some point, they're going to find the cracks. And they did. And there you go. Exactly. And that's an excellent observation there. So much footage out there. When all your fights are, well, most of your fights are going the distance, five-round distance, that's a lot of tape for someone to watch. So, yeah, Ilya Topuria, hats off to you. The co-main event was absolutely bonkers. It was fun. It was exciting. But it was also classic Paulo Costa. Start strong, shit the bed. Victor, take it away. <sighs> I said this last week at the mailbag, which you folks really should be asking more questions at. Mailbag at bloodyelbow.com. I said it. I said it, I said it, I said it, and I stand by it, and I was proven correct yet again. He burns bright, but not for very long. And he didn't have as many weapons, as many options on the table as he would like you to think. Whitaker was able to exploit that. He was able to find him with the jab. He caught him on the way, uh, on the way back, primarily. Once he started really in that second round is when he started landing some shots. It really started bopping Paulo's head back. And that's when I said, okay, I think this is, we can call it, I think this is safe now. And look, that's not to say that it was over from there, but rather that that was the beginning of the end. And we saw how things went on from there. It didn't really get much better offensively from Casa. The biggest holy shit moment that he was able to provide was that spinning kick, which credit to him for landing it, didn't seem like it had that much oomph behind it. Rob was able to really uh, recover fairly quickly from that and keep going. Um, well, no, actually, Rob was saved by the horn. That's what stopped him from getting shit kicked even more. It wasn't that he recovered. It was that. No, it wasn't a full recovery either. Yeah, yeah he was, was still, like he was the, done for a while, but it wasn't one of those like, well, you know. That's the thing. He got kicked and about two seconds later, the horn sounded. He was on roller skates and Costa had already hit him again. He was going to go down, but the horn sounded and saved him. That's the thing. He was saved in there. I was going to point out something um, that Rob also looked pretty damn mortal in that moment. His recovery was tremendous, though. Yes, yes. And, you know, credit to, to, credit to Costa for doing what he did and, and putting on the best performance that he could. But, you know, there's a level, man, that's the ceiling right there. And I'm glad that at least he seemed to have taken the loss in stride. Yeah, 
Yeah. It was, you know what? I was expecting some some bullshit and he didn't give it. And I, I, I appreciated that. I appreciate that Rob recovered, but Rob's chin is eroding a lot faster than I expected because he takes so long off in between fights for, for such a long period. And now he's fighting at a regular pace. And when he fights at a regular pace, it seems like, you know, it's um, it's a little shaky. Yeah, because he's taking so much more damage yeah. consistently. And, he, and look, look at the guys he's fighting. You know, he's yeah. fighting Cannoneer. He's fighting Costa. Yeah. Fighting Izzy. Like these guys, all of them hit really fucking hard. Mm-hmm. It's got, you can't really blame the guy for for having that happen when you know there's there's not too many guys that have that level of power in the division, mm-hmm. and he's eating shots from all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I have to look at Rob and think, woof. You know, don't give him anybody that hits any harder than that. (laughs) I don't think he's uh, I don't think he's going to have too many choices here. I think it's interesting to pair him up with Strickland, though. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't mind seeing Anthony Hernandez and Strickland either. Oh, my God. Mm. That would be amazing. And, you know, I'll tell you what. Since we're speaking of Anthony Fluffy Hernandez, wow, he's he's gotten so much better. His striking was absolutely atrocious for a while when he first got here. His striking was something that you excused because of his grappling, but you don't no longer have to excuse that. His striking has gotten a lot better. He's working on it, and it shows. Yeah, he's, you can certainly see that these guys are, especially some of the younger prospects like him, when when they're making the kind of progression where like, okay, I don't really see too much, you know, from one fight to the next fight to the next, like, all right, three fights in, looking a little shaky. But then by their fourth one, they're like, holy shit, leaps and bounds, yeah. you know, and, and it's funny to see how how Hernandez has just, uh, there, there's a pretty strong turnaround from his previous fight to this one, and it definitely showed here it paid off and super smart grappling there um <laughs> i should have picked him <laughs> Same. but you know what that. roman kopilov there for a little bit was all right and yeah oh yeah absolutely uh i think that that's a thing he's another one that learns really well and he also listens to his corner really well mm. so I will be looking somewhere down the road. If they ever book that rematch, I would be 10 toes down on it. I love that rematch for sure. Mm. Yep. So, and I, I wouldn't mind seeing Roman Kopilov versus anybody too. I mean, God, the kid, yeah, he was on a four fight run before this. He'll probably go back to the drawing board and put together another big run because that's now, what he does. You know, look at us. Look at us. We finally got some middleweights. Not one, two middleweights. New ones coming yeah. up that we're excited about. Isn't that nice? I mean, that feel good? I'm it feels still really good. excited for Rob. I'm just cautiously excited, and he must be matched carefully. Well, he should. I'm just referring to the whole uh, Fluffy yeah. and Kapilov thing because it's like, damn, when's the? It, it's it's been such a long time since we've seen two middleweight prospects that we've been thrilled to see coming up the ranks. It's mm. this this feels not only fresh, but it feels strange because we ain't felt this shit in a long time. Hernandez has really got a super high ceiling. I think I I like. <laughs> and here's the thing: 
Strickland and Drikas look sloppy. We panned the hell out of that fight because it was a slop fest for the most yeah. part. But here yeah. you get Anthony Hernandez and Roman Kopilov who make obvious strides to be better. And Anthony Hernandez is looking like the real deal here. Man, mm. it's it is uh middleweight is maybe starting to come together a little bit, but only at the top end. The bottom end is still a damn mess, but we'll oh, yeah. <laughs> hopefully we'll get some clarity on that as fights progress. But for now, I'm cautiously optimistic, as you are. Uh, Merab Devalishvili, he embarrassed Henry Cejudo, okay? That shit where he picks him up walks him and he it was a deliberate walk too it wasn't a struggle or anything like that here's henry squirming like a goddamn bug on top of his shoulder as he trots him over not to dana not to henry's corner he trots him over to and i quote in the words of mike bisping the zuckerberg the Zuckerberg. The Zuckerberg. Like he's a, some sort of extraterrestrial villain, yes. Exactly. Throws him down right there in front of the Zuckerberg, who had been shouting the times to him so he would know how much time was left on the clock. I mean, Zuckerberg yeah. or the Zuckerberg was so engaged in this UFC event. I have never seen the guy smile and laugh. <laughs> and he was like a kid in a candy store his wife was next to him and she was laughing and care man they yeah. love this shit bro you know this, when i when i interviewed ed zitron uh, a little bit ago that's exactly one of the things that he said he says i've never seen him have this much fun this is amazing yes. to see this guy who's been you know panned for essentially being a you know the 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 alan tudyk's character from i robot right <laughs> the most sterile man in the universe and now he's out here he's fucking excited and shout out to rob bro he carried that man he not only carried this dude the way you carry a child who falls asleep in the car, now you got to drag the motherfucker to his bed. He carries him over talking shit the whole while, the yeah. whole stride. He took extra steps to go the long way in a cage to make that happen. That's embarrassing, bro. That's a shit. But at the same time, if you want to look at it the other way, it's even more impressive that he did that to Henry. Such a credentialed, talented, and amazing wrestler. You know, he might be a little older. He might have lost a step or two, but he still got that wrestling base and technique. And for him to get swooped up and taken down like that, that's monumental, man. Like, you really take a step back. That's that's fucking huge. And that was, that was like the second or third takedown. When Marab started landing the takedowns, did you notice how he was spearing him? Wow, it was insane. That dude I mean, is man. He you know, treated I, he treated Henry like a child. You know when yeah. they say he got handled? Yeah. Henry got handled. He got handled and he got sunned. Look, I feel kind of bad for Sterling going out the way he did, but if that's what it took for Marab to get his day in the sun, man, listen. And then you have Sugar Sean out here saying, Yeah, yeah, there's three guys. And and Marab is one of them, but I would rather fight Ilya. Listen, mm -hmm. sit your fucking ass down and defend your belt first. Uh, listen. And then after that, you defend your belt again because there are other people in your division you need to clean out before you run your mouth about going up. Because Ilya Topuria... <laughs> 
will sleep you into the next dimension? Oh my goodness. Okay, but but okay, hear me out though. Hear me out though. This is where I insert the clip of Monique. I would like to see it. I, I, I don't think I want to see it now. Now, see, the, don't get me wrong. I don't think this should be happening right away. There's just a couple of moving pieces. I just want to briefly, because I don't want to d- dwell on this for too long. But look, man, it's a fresh and exciting matchup. Ilya's got all the buzz in the world. He's white hot, dude. I mean, like, yes, it makes sense. You got two guys, big punchers. They won their title with sensational finishes. Yeah, that makes sense. That is something that creates a lot of buzz. And this is something that O'Malley could use as some sort of bargaining chip or some sort of way of measuring what kind of stroke he has within the UFC, right? This could just be him saying that, throwing that out there, planting the seeds for a potential future thing. You know what I mean? But either way, it's not a bad matchup, although I'm with you. I'd much rather see these guys defend their belts in their respective divisions because we see what happens when these guys, the moment they get the belt, their eyes are somewhere else because that's how shitty the structure and the pay scale is for these guys. That this is You won the belt, congratulations. Now you start to make money. Well, and it shouldn't have to be that way. Here's the thing, though. <clears throat> Aljamain Sterling already revealed that Sean don't move the needle like Sean talks he moves the needle. Right. All right, so it's not as big a fight as everybody is thinking coming from his side of the equation. The other thing is I need guys to stay in their own division so they can stop holding the shit up. All right, I need them to do that. I need Sean to sit down and clean his division first. That's the mistake all of these idiots are making. And by idiots, I mean you fucking fighters. Clean your division. You called three people. You called Corey Sanhagen. You called Merab Devalishvili. And for some stupid reason, you called Ilya Topuria, who would absolutely smash you. He would treat you like the donkey you are. Smack you on your butt and send you on your way. You don't need to worry about him. Worry about the guys you already mentioned. Worry about Merab Devalishvili, worry about Corey Sandhagen. And then once you've worried about those guys, then you can talk about Ilya Topuria, but not a second before that. Keep your mouth closed until then. Yeah, well, you know how he's, he's got to, but listen, he's got to shoot strays everywhere. That's just what it is. That's yeah. just who he is. Yeah, but you know what? These guys that are shooting strays, right now in this very delicate space in time for the UFC where they don't have a clue if Connor's ever going to come back. And I, I hope and pray he does not. I hope he finds more money over in Riyadh for Manny <laughs> or whoever the hell. Uh, you know I hope I mean? he, I hope he gets more money in WWE because he sure is fucking getting a fight with Downer anywhere else. It's not, it's not going to happen. This dude came out here. Everybody, wow! He just called him out. Like, okay, were you really impressed with that? Oh, was that first really of that? All, that was the worst, lamest, lamest <sighs> call out ever. First of all, he recycled the rocks line of candy ass. He couldn't even come up with his own shit when he. W- it was obviously prepared that he was going out there. It was all set up and everything. Why the hell didn't you come up with your own line? And wow. then, and then you're calling him out. You're cutting a promo and you, and, and you put this in there and God bless. I'll see uh, you at the top. Bitch, get back. I, That's the <laughs> worst promo ever. You, I, you robbed, you robbed the line and then you then you put a God bless in there and then and then a see you at the top. 
And then you shouted yourself hoarse in the span of 21 seconds. In 21 seconds, you couldn't even get your shit out at the end. Your veins are popping out everywhere. You're looking like you're about to bust like a, an overripe tomato. You know, okay, but I got to empathize with him on a couple of things. Number one, you throw the candy ass line in to empathize, right? To kind of get on the side of the crew. I'm down with you, you know, and especially with the rock nah, coming back nah, and you don't putting rob, on vintages. You and don't not rob only the that, rock. I have to empathize as well with the fact that I am also somebody who can do not much else after 21 seconds. And yes, I do look like I'm about to bust. So, you know, I, I kind of feel like at that, you kind of got to give him a little bit of leeway. No. no, the promo was not. The promo was not great. I just don't understand how so MMA fans and, and media are so easily impressed. Wow. Look what he did. Okay, I mean, so what? What, what did mean. you accomplish with this? What's this going to lead to? You haven't been – you've been scheduled to fight this man for damn near two years. You know, I, I'll get – the one thing I got to really genuinely give him credit for – Shout out to Michael Chandler. God bless him. I said it on Twitter. I'll say it again. Nobody's light shines brighter during Black History Month like Michael Chandler. Flexing. <laughs> God damn. Good for him. I mean, he, the thing, too, is that it's to the point where it's delusion now. He's not getting that fight. I mean, if the UFC wants to stay in the Conor McGregor business. They have to break him off a bigger piece than what they are. This all comes down to money. Michael Chandler said, there's a man who's been ducking me. He's been, you know, running from me, blah, blah, blah. No, this is not Conor McGregor's fault. This is 100% on the UFC. They are the ones that are not paying to make this fight, Michael Chandler. And you yeah. sitting here on the sidelines, letting the last little bit of your prime run the fuck out. You are a dumb, dumb man to keep this charade going. Please exit stage right or get the UFC to make you a fight with someone else so that you can make some money. I mean, how hard is this? Everyone I, in the entire <laughs> universe can see that this fight is not happening. This is like the Three Stooges bit. Is everybody dumb? Say, Judge, look, you know, like, what the fuck is going I mean, on, God man? Damn, man? I just, I, I'm so tired of this. He could have fought like three times by now. Yes. You know what I'm saying? He could have probably, I'm not saying, I don't know what kind of upside, I don't know what kind of money he would have made, what was on the table, what contractually was offered for him to fight McGregor, if theoretically that is something, like if they got to that stage of the situation, right? But that being said, it's just starting to look so pathetic. You know what I mean? And I feel for the man because I get it. He wants to do something major, but bro, this ain't even the right kind of fight for Connor to take. Yeah, it's So not. like- I don't get it. He's clearly the A side, and you're out here chasing, and now you're out here. I just, I mean, this, he this looks, wasn't. He looks so desperate and so ridiculous. I mean, I look at him and I pity him. Do you want pity? And That's they put the WrestleMania, they put the WrestleMania logo in the frame, like somehow this was going to happen at WrestleMania. Like, why did you have to use that? Also, it doesn't, that was a very odd choice from the director's chair. Also, the pop at the beginning was so minimal. He had to really work for it. And 
Because they don't know who he is. Exactly. People that are deep into the just listen, there's a lot of overlap between people that love pro wrestling and MMA. Yes. But the people that are firmly entrenched in wrestling, they don't give a fuck about MMA. If they haven't jumped on that bandwagon in the last 20 years since the Ultimate Fighter kicked off on the air, they're not jumping in now. They didn't do it when Shogun versus Hendo was a thing. They didn't do it when McGregor's ascent happened. They didn't do it at the height of McGregor's career or when Brock Lesnar jumped ship. Or they when did. Ronda was fighting and you know they ended up with her the 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 thing is is chandler god please save what's left of your dignity because you're literally giving your dignity to the ufc to just trample on i i I don't know how else to put this get another fight dude Mm, either that or get a cdl because this ain't working exactly now there's another fight we need to talk about Ian Machado Gary defeating Jeff Neal. Oh, the, baby. In the fashion that he did after he talked all that shit. <gasps> Sir, you actually said that you would be too big, too much of a superstar to headline in your home country. And you put on that performance? Man, if you don't shut your mouth, and I say this as a sympathizer, I am sympathetic to your plight where your wife is concerned. But you need to make a choice here, sir. You're either going to be a face or you're going to be a heel. But this wishy-washy bullshit you're doing, ah, man. Victor, help me out here. We've got Ilya, 27 doing all these great things and not looking like a donkey where is ian machado gary going wrong okay so uh jesus where where to begin look let's start with the fight okay um i some of this you could say is due to the fact that jeff neal is a tough dude all right. It's it's going to be a little hard for some people to look good against him. I don't think that he was I didn't think for a moment that Ian was going to like just sweep the floor with this guy because Jeff Neal is, again, a tough dude. Right. So I get it. The fight was not exciting. It was interesting in some moments. It was fine. It was just there. But that's the problem. If you are being touted as a future star and you're talking about yourself as a future star and you essentially do what is the closest thing to laying an egg uh in in a win that's gonna be a little tough you know like whatever else you got going outside of fighting better be real strong to keep your hype train going because not too many people are going to be thrilled to see you fight after a performance like that and again it's not even really totally his fault the guy moved down to shoot box he's training with a bunch of killers i'm like all right this is going to be interesting i want to see what he's got going on and it was interesting but just it didn't have much sizzle and now all this shit is going on where you know the the conflicting um public facing elements of this i i don't i i don't really know what to make of this my whole thing with ian is the public relations moves that he's making seem a little confusing to me i it's and i i usually wouldn't care but there's obviously very very clearly an effort to manicure particular set of elements right to to create this this picture of him and if you're doing that and you're doing it badly it starts to show if you're someone like Sean Strickland who's just going by the seat of his pants, that's a different situation. If you're Anderson Silva who's like, yeah, being a little measured, but there's not really like this professional veneer attempt, that's also different. This, 
I don't know what to make of this, man. I really don't. I, I just I'd like for maybe for him to take a step back, not do so much publicly. Just show pictures of you training, pictures of you with your kid, show up at some charity events here and there, and that's it. Just do that for a little bit. Scale it back up when you got your next fight coming up and just let the work in the cage speak for itself. But right now, I mean, what else can he do? Well, for starters, when he's in the cage, he can go for it and not run because well, that last couple of minutes of that fight was literally him circling away, circling away, circling away so that he could run the clock out. And that pissed me off. Okay, that that's one thing you can do. You can get in the cage and you can go for it. That's the difference in him and Ilya. Ilya was not he was not afraid to believe in himself <clears throat> and he went for it constantly and look at the result. Ian Machado Gary didn't go for it in there. And he has been in positions where he went for it. We saw we've seen beautiful knockouts from him. Yeah, we I mean, that's the thing, man. It's it's a very what have you done for me lately sport in that respect. Yeah. You know, Ilya has that rack. He's got he's left that trail of bodies, you know, and he's beaten people that he perhaps, you know, on paper probably shouldn't have beaten like like Josh Emmett, mm -hmm. you know, just based on the experience factor alone and the wrestling. It's like, OK, this is going to be probably his stiffest test. And then he goes in there. It's like, oh, shit. OK. Maybe not. It's like, yeah. what's he going to do? Volkanovsky, an even bigger uh, challenge. And then look at what he does. So that's, there's there's that. And then there's this, whatever mm -hmm. it is that's going on with Ian. It's a Thank different you. division, a different set of skills, a different approach to fighting. And maybe letting his hands go would be something. But maybe that would also be ill-advised. Like, I don't know if I'm really... I'm not really comfortable in giving him advice what to do as a fighter because he's the oh, pro, he's in there, and he's got his he's got his crew. But I would I would be curious to know what his coaching staff is attempting to do, and if he's actually following that advice. Where is where is the fracture happening here? When you have someone that could very clearly be putting on a bit more in his performances, and we're just not seeing it. And it sounds, I mean, I feel a little bad saying it because I'm not a pro fighter. You know what I mean? He clearly is. He's put in the work. He's got the experience. I don't. But I've seen enough of this shit to know that there's something that's not quite clicking here. And I'm I, I'd I'd like to know where it is. I, I'd like to see a bit more of that promise that he's presented be fulfilled. See, I can say it because I'm paying for this shit. All right. Yeah, that's I've too. been covering okay. it for almost 20 years. Okay. November is gonna be oh my god. Uh, November is going to be 19 years for me in this space covering this sport. I believe that I can look at a fight and tell when a fighter is not putting everything into it. In other words, and I quote the most cliche thing in the world, leaving it all in the cage. That is something that in this particular fight, Ian Machado Gary did not do. Now, if you're going to build up your fight and make everybody hate you going in because you talked all that shit and then you put something out like that, you Colby Covington motherfucker, that's what you did. You gave us a Colby Covington performance and then you got up there and talked about how you dominated and this and that. You barely yeah. eat out a split decision. And a lot of people think Jeff Neal won that fight. Yeah, you and here's the funny thing. You, you say that. I didn't even I didn't even see those comments until Monday morning. 
Yeah. And I'm like, oh, baby, that's not, mm, no. I mean, no. you better give me something so dramatically different from this fight in your next fight because I will just cut you off. You will get <laughs> nothing but acid from me. Oh, my God. You are on dangerous ground, young man. And mm. I am sympathetic to you. That's what kills me. Mm. You got some fixing to do. Yeah, I'm and that's sure the thing. It's, it's, not, it's not even haterism. It's just like, dude, we know you can do better. We yes. want you to do better. And it's not happening. What the fuck, man? You know, that's making really me look bad from. for supporting you yeah. <laughs> now there's one last fight I want to look at just one and that is Amanda Limosh and Mackenzie Dirt now you, you at the end of last week if you remember in your picks you had started to pick Amanda Limosh and you said ah fuck it I'll just go ahead and go with Dern you, you don't know how close he came you know she was right there on the edge but you know she let Amanda Lemos terrorize her in that in that one round, and boy, oh boy, um, that's what did it. And then Amanda just kept pot shotting her. And, Dern, you gotta do better, and, and you're another one. Uh, you're you're definitely no Ian Machado, Gary, but you're another one who people say six months. With uh, this camp or this coach and her striking would be dramatically improved. Just leaps and bounds improvement if she went here or here or here. But that's the thing. Mackenzie has done this. She has gone to here and here and here. And she's been with camps for six, eight months, a year, whatever, specifically so she could work on her wrestling or on her striking. And Mackenzie Derm always reverts. And that's a problem. I don't even know where to even where she would even have to go here for this, because yep. here's the thing that fight. Exciting for the reasons that perhaps we didn't expect, right? I mean, it it did turn into a brawl. Uh, Lemos taking down Dern, which, okay, not totally expected. But then Dern knocking down Amanda. Mm -hmm. That was, I mean, it was a wild-ass fight. And, I mean, look, some of it was fun, but it was also kind of sad. Like, damn, dude, why can't Mackenzie, like, why are you still trying to trade blows standing in close quarters you're already getting hurt. Like, don't do that. Mm -mm. Didn't matter. She kept going for it. And that's just, it's that kind of determination that's going to get you crossed up. Um, I don't know if that's a coachable thing. I don't know if that's maybe, I know she's got a lot of personal problems. I don't know if that's affecting anything. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't want to speculate too much, but there's, there's a lot of questions here. And, um, you know, look, she's still motivated and able to make things work in some cases, but She's at a level where she can't afford to keep making that kind of mistake. And this isn't even just like mistakes anymore. This is just a point of like, this is the mold that she's decided to limit herself within. Mm, indeed. All right. So we are going to go ahead and get into UFC Mexico, which, listen, there's some fights on here. The, the, the name value is concentrated in the top two fights. But there are some fun fights for real hardcores. There are some fun fights in here. Look, 
the alternate factoids, they're coming. I, I, I'm a shock victor with some, some of these stats. <laughs> but overall, I still like this card a whole lot. They, they put some effort into it, even if there is a serious dearth of ranked fighters and ranked fights. It's still a good, fun, action-packed card. It should be. They clearly put a little effort into the matchmaking regarding the action. So... Anyways, we are going to review the, the, the main card, the five fights on the main card. I believe there's five. Yes. Yeah. Uh, actually, there's six fights on the main card, but we're only doing the top five. So we are going to start with our standings. Yes, I haven't done that in a while. So let me let me just read off how we did last week. Mookie and I tied uh, with five and one apiece. The only one I got wrong was Kopilov, and the only one that Mookie got wrong was Volkanovsky. Victor went three and three because he picked Mackenzie Dern, Roman Kopilov, and Volkanovsky, but he did get Merob, Ian, and, and Bobby Knuckles right. So the standings right now, Mookie's in the lead, 14 and six. I'm behind him, 12 and eight. And Victor's right behind me, 10 and 10. So we're all within two of each other, except Victor is four behind Mookie. But it's all a very tight race right now. So now we are going to get to this UFC Mexico card, but let's give Victor his his alternate factoids. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. Hit me. <laughs> all right. Fighters uh, that are ranked four. Fights that are ranked two. Fighters come on off a loss. Fifteen. That's more than half the card because there are 13 fights on this card. 26 fighters and 15 of them are coming off of a loss. Mm -hmm. Fighters coming from tough, not directly from. These are just tough alum. We have uh, three and fighters coming from, let's see here, yeah, one, two, three. And fighters coming from the Contender Series. Wow, we have 12. So, and fighters making their debut, we have just one. So, those are our alternative factoids. Victor, are you surprised with any of those? Uh, Yeah, I didn't realize there were that many Ultimate Fighter veterans. For some reason, yeah, I just just yeah, three, just three on this card. I I still didn't. I just looking at the card. I'm like, really? Because you know what? You just you just forget. Yeah. Especially since I just watch maybe the first two episodes these days, and then I tune out. Yeah. So it's you'd think that I, that some of it would stick. Nope. Mm -mm. But yep, we do. So, anyways. Let's go ahead and look at this card. We're going to start with Yasmin Warigi taking on Sam Hughes. Victor, how you how you looking at this? Uh, Yasmin has her striking is a little more organized in the long run. Uh, her wrestling defense is going to be a question mark here because Sam is really good at taking people down. Uh, can she hold Yasmin down? Will the size difference be something to consider here? I'm going to go with Yasmin. As am I, and Mookie is also going to go with Yasmin. Uh, next up, we have Raul Rosas Jr. taking on Ricky Tercios. This is a good fight. Yes. 
I mean, uh, you know what? Uh, I don't have a problem with any of the fights on the main card, but this one's, um, it was a little bit hard for me to pick. I went with Rosa's. Um, Mookie also went with Rosa's, but it was a little tougher for me to pick. Ricky Tercios is a tough son of a gun. Yes, very tough. We saw that last fight against Kevin Natividad. This dude's got grit. Um, I don't think I can, I don't feel comfortable picking against the kid though, man. I <laughs> just, uh, I mean, this man's barely, he's barely getting through puberty, but he is, he's beating grown men's asses. And I just, I, I, I gotta trust him. I, right now that kid is a nightmare to grapple with. And even though fights start standing, I, I gotta go with Raul. All right. So all three of us are going with Raul Rosas Jr. All three of us are going with Yasmin Warigi. Now we get to Daniel Zaluber. Versus Francisco Prado, another banger. Listen, you guys might not recognize these names, but if you're a hardcore, you do. And you know Daniel Zaluber is the real deal, and Francisco Prado is not a pushover. This is a great fight. Again, That's right. 155. I I'm going with Zaluber. Yep, same M here. Mookie I'm going to go with as Daniel. Well. I mean, this guy, the sky's the limit, it looks like. So I'm excited for this one. Yeah, he's kind of got that thing like uh, Umberto Bandanai, just like that long-limbed guy who throws those awkward kicks. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of he's got to bend his knee a little, like the old Jim Kelly movies. But it just works. You know what I'm saying? Like, see, that's how you know. That's how you know we fucking old, baby. That's right. If you don't get that reference, go back to sleep. Go play with your Pokemon's and your Robloxes. But yeah, man, this kid is legit. And I mean, not for nothing. I just Prado hasn't been. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, he's he's good. I just haven't been overly impressed right. to the degree to the degree that I have been with Daniel. That's yeah. all I'm saying. Yeah, Daniel's extremely dynamic. He's fun to watch. So, yeah. all right, co-main event time. I like this fight a lot, but man, Brian Ortega got a shitter. Get off the pot, okay? So. We have Yair Rodriguez <laughs> okay. versus Brian Ortega. They are both coming off of a loss. Neither one came from tough and neither one came from contender series. We're looking at organic guys here. Ditto the main event. But anyways, Victor, talk to me about Brian Ortega and Yair Rodriguez. Well, first thing we got to remind everybody of this is a rematch. Yes. Uh, first match ended in an injury stoppage mm -hmm. to Brian Ortega. Mm -hmm. And I've doubted Brian too many times. I, you know, I, I'm finally giving in. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm going to say that uh, Brian is probably going to do what he needs to do to get this um, to get this W by controlling space, using his hands to set up his takedowns. And look, Yair knows exactly what Brian does best and how he does it. But um, Brian is just he's got that that. Um, What's what's the name of that? It's just those violent whirlpools. Once he gets you on the ground, man, he will drown you. And I kind of feel like at some point it's inevitable for this to hit the ground. And it is a uh, five rounder too, so that's another thing to consider. Um, shit, you know, I I, I got to go with Brian here. All right, I'm gonna try and convince you otherwise. I want <sighs> you to walk it back, and here's why. In Brian's last four fights, he's lost three of them. The only fight he was able to win was against a very washed Korean zombie. But you got to bring this back, okay? You got to come back to reality here. Come on, pick here. I got to believe, man. And I'm sticking with Brian. Oh, my Lord. Victor, why are you doing this? 
I, mm. I can't do it. I got to pick here. I mean, okay. that first fight was very telling. All right. Ortega was not doing well. I'm sorry, I can't do it. I gotta go with I gotta go with Yer Rodriguez. Mookie is also going with Yer Rodriguez. Victor, are you sure I can't talk you down? Nah, I'm pretty stubborn. I'm gonna stay with it. All right. Now we get to the main event, also a rematch. Brandon Moreno versus Brandon Royval. I'm going Moreno. <laughs> no rhyme or reason. I know Brandon Royval's tough, but I- I'm going Marino. Mookie's going Marino. How can you not go Marino? I, I look, Brandon Royval's got a lot of talent. He's got the he's got brilliant setups and, and knockout power. He can wrestle, he can submit, he can work his way out of submissions too. But Brandon, man, again, another guy that I've doubted for a long time, but he's kind of got some of that Damian Maya esque uh, idea of grappling. You know, utilizing wrestling to then work a more conventional hooks and traps and that sort of thing on the ground. So I kind of feel like that makes him complete along with the striking. We've seen the wars that he had with Figueredo. We saw what that led to. We see the wars that he's had with Pantage. It's like there's a cut above and Brandon can hang with these guys, but I don't think he's one of these guys. Yeah. And that's that's really where it is. And I mean, I, I don't want to sound too mean when I say it. That's just, you know, there's there's limits. To, everybody's got their limit. And I kind of feel like that's where it's at for him. Indeed. So all three of us are going with Brandon Marino. Now, Victor, I have a surprise for you. OK, there is a Victor on this card. So I'm going to have you pick Victor Altamirano versus Felipe Dos Santos. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, that's it. That's see. Now you're putting me in a tough spot because both of these guys are like really, really good. And as I mean, acquitted himself fairly well against uh, Manel Cap in his last outing. He did, right? Man. He did. He did. But I mean, I just. Hmm. Shit. I mean, I'm looking at the way that he busted up Daniel Lacerda. I'm looking at the way that he edged out Carlos Candelario to get in on the on the contender series. I almost said Ultimate Fighter. I'm looking at his run in LFA. Like he's had a pretty respectable set of wins, but his losses, you know, Jared Brooks, Carlos Hernandez, Tim Elliott. Like those are like established names, I guess. Well, at least at least Elliott and. Um, and Jared Brooks are they're they're more like established veterans that have had bigger exposure and like fought better people. Um, I don't know if he's already hit his ceiling, but then again, then again, even if he has, at age thirty three, is Felipe dos Santos also part of that crew that could show his ceiling? I'm not really sure. Solidarity with the victors. I'm gonna go with Altamirano for the fun of it. Heck yeah! Always go with the victor. <laughs> No, not always, because we had a literal Victor Rodriguez in the UFC. And I mean, you know, hey, listen, I got I still haven't sent that man a fruit basket. (laughs) All right. So on that note, this is the time when we would tell you to subscribe because we still need subscriptions. Now, the rest of the show is free, 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 free. But we still depend on subscriptions to help us stay afloat. So if you have it, please, please consider you know, um, pledging it to us. Thank you so much. Follow Victor, follow me, follow Mookie. You, you know where, and, and Victor's going to close it out after his interview with the amazing Josie Reisman, unauthorized biographer of Vince McMahon. So stick around. We will be right back with that. Don't go anywhere. 
And here we are, my people, audience members. I don't say that enough, but I really do care about you. And in fact, I care about you so much that we have decided to introduce a very, very special guest. I am honored and thrilled to have author Josie Reisman, author of Ringmaster, the pretty much the definitive biography on Vince McMahon, a very in-depth look at the times and the rise of the pro wrestling mogul and kingpin. Josie, again, thank you so, so much for carving out time from your schedule to join us today. No problem. I'm very happy to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Now, clearly, uh, you wrote the book and it was released in a very timely way, uh, given the fact that this was not too far from when the previous ouster of Vince McMahon had taken place due to the allegations mm-hmm. that had been made against him, the case that we are all familiar with now with Rita Chatterton. And, I mean, it was a very fortuitous thing. And I just – just for to start there because of the timeline. Sure. Um, how how – odd did that feel that all of these things were happening around the time that this was really well, supposed it was- to get – yeah. Right. Yeah. It was very strange um, because I pitched the book. Uh, well, I first had the conversation with my spouse slash editor who uh, advises me on such things. Uh, we were having a brainstorm about what I should write about and for my next book. And Vince McMahon came up. But this was February of 2020. I mean, Vince was in the news to the extent that he kind of always was in the news. There's always sort of a There used to be a low simmer of Vince McMahon content that you could get in your media outlets. And he was not as big a deal as he had been or as he is now. So it felt a little like an off the wall choice. But I had this sense that wrestling was having a bit of a resurgence. You know, AEW had just really gotten off the ground. And just from being in the ecosystem of Twitter, which I was on back then, I could tell that there was excitement about wrestling again. So I thought, why not? But I had no idea that Vince McMahon specifically would be such a dynamic actor in the wrestling story and sort of the American story in the stretch of, you know, when the book came out in hardcover in March of last year, 2023, to when the paperback is coming out this April. I mean, in that stretch alone, he sold the company to Ari Emanuel. I mean, that happened the same week that the book came out, which was also the same week as WrestleMania. Never accused Vince of not understanding spectacle. (laughs) And um, that was strange on its own. I mean, that was a very weird coincidence. Uh, Even weirder was the fact that the book was supposed to come out the previous November, but due to COVID-related backups and supply chain issues they had to delay it until march and the date that my publisher chose completely random not randomly but you know they picked for non-wrestling reasons the date they chose was the tuesday before wrestlemania so the whole thing ended up feeling somehow faded but these past few weeks have been especially pivotal and fascinating to watch and you know it's it i feel honored that people have been turning to me to ask for some commentary, but the story is very much not over. I mean, it's, it's really going to be a rolling concern for Vince, for WWE and for its parent company, TKO, and for that company's parent company, uh, Endeavor. Now, 
given that you uh, I mean, you've, you've written about being a pro wrestling fan in your youth and your teenage years for some mm-hmm. time. Did you imagine yourself at any point that you were going to be the person <laughs> who would write the no, biography no. of this guy? No, no. Like, I mean, know? absolutely not. I I didn't even want to be a writer when I was growing up. I wanted to be an actor, which was kind of the reason I gravitated to wrestling so much. You know, I often say there are kind of two roads for a youth to get into pro wrestling. There's the ones who get into pro wrestling after liking sports and the ones who get into pro wrestling after liking musical theater. And I was very much <laughs> in the musical theater camp. I emphasis on camp. I saw wrestling for the first time at the urging of a fellow theaterish friend of mine. And this was 1999 spring or early 1999. Oh, and it was such a ridiculous time for wrestling at that moment at both WWF and WCW and ECW. Everything was completely over the top mm-hmm. and it was what you call crash TV. It was, you know, something where if you're flipping through channels, you're supposed to see at any given moment, something so ludicrous that you can't help but keep on that channel and watch the WWF programming. And I was one of those people who couldn't look away. I was completely addicted to it in my teenage years, but I I was not thinking about it in terms of journalism or history. I was just wrapped up in the product. I thought it was a complete thrill ride. And it was also an interesting sort of gender document because I was just hitting puberty when I started watching it. And it was part of this period of real gender and sexuality panic in America And I was watching wrestling very addictively and going like, okay, so that's what a man is supposed to be like. You know, I'm a trans woman now, but like that was me at at 13 going like, okay, men are supposed to be like this because that was the image that was getting conveyed. But yeah, to answer your question, no, this this was not in the cards. No, but, but I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that. I'm glad you, you touched on that that last point because, I mean, personally, my own body dysmorphia in terms of like, you know, mm. my, my struggles with with distress eating and yo-yoing sure. and all that. Like Boy, at I that know point about in that my life, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on. you know, you're like, well, why can't I, no matter what I do, you know, get lean and get buff and look like right. some more right. like the not necessarily like these guys. Right. I mean, I'm not right. going to look like hardcore Holly, but <laughs> at some point, you know, maybe like maybe Billy Kidman. I don't know. Something. <laughs> And then, right, right. Yeah. And so seeing that and then seeing the fact that this is where we tie back into Vince as well, because in 1999, 2000, this is where things were starting or perhaps it already hit a fever pitch with Vince yeah. McMahon, the character on Mr. television. Mr. McMahon, yes. Mr. McMahon, the tycoon, the, the, the authority who would actually get in the ring and get bloodied up and who infamously, you know, told Kurt Angle, don't pull your punches on me, you son of a bitch, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, you went know, on to, to wrestle to... God, went on to wrestle God and beat God oh, in a God. match. That was a little later, but, me. you know. Anyway, <laughs> go on. Yes. Yeah. The Shawn Michaels thing. God, that was so bad. Never forget. Uh, really a m- remarkable television. But go on. Yes. Yes. So um, I, I'm what I'm I guess I'm, I'm trying to get to is the point of Vince McMahon being this this star in his own product. Sure. And I'm curious to see how you contrast what you saw from what your mindset was like at that age 
to then to then you Josie Reisman the author looking into all of this and then putting this mosaic together yeah that's sort of my mo in my work so far my books at least is you know we're all living in the past these days especially the 90s there's a real Mm. chronic uh nostalgia that a lot of people are going through for that period and I find myself guilty of that as well. You know, my first three books are about the three things I was obsessed with when I hit my 14th birthday. And those were Stan Lee and Marvel Comics, Mm. Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation. And my next book, uh, which, you know, we don't have to talk about, but my next book is is a biography of Beck, the musician Beck, who I was obsessed with. It's a book called Hollywood Freaks, the true story of Beck. And, um... You know, I, I've thought a lot about that. It, it, there's some to some degree, it feels infantile and like, why can't I grow up and write about grown up subjects? But they are grown up subjects. That's sort of the thing is when you're a kid, you're watching this stuff and you're taking it very seriously, but you don't really know the behind the scenes aspects or maybe you think you do, but you're not a journalist and you don't really have great critical thinking skills. But. The challenge is, I think, when it comes to nostalgia in general, and certainly for me when I do my books, is how do I, if I'm trapped in the past, how do I not just look around googly-eyed and going, wow, the past, how great this is, and how do I instead, while I'm in the past, look around and start finding clues? You know, I mean, I cast my mind back to the time when I was consuming this stuff, let's talk, let's say WWF in particular. And instead of looking at, there's part of me that just feels nostalgic about it, but the challenge is to go, okay, well, what was really happening during this moment that I, that was etched in my memory? You know, I end spoiler alert. I end the core narrative of this book with the reveal of the greater power which is now regarded as one of the dumbest storylines in the history of the WWF, WWE. But at the time, I was, you know, 13, very impressionable, and had no real impression of Vince McMahon as evil because he had been doing a bit since I started watching only a few months prior where he was a face. He was, he was mostly a good guy. So when the hood was thrown back and Vince's grinning face was there and he said, it's me, Austin – it was it was me all along, Austin. Um, I was terrified. It was I was terrified and infuriated and betrayed. And part of me wants to just sort of go watch that moment and think about how interesting it is and how it made me feel. But the challenge is to continue past that and go, OK, well, what was the story behind the story here? What did other people make of it? What did what were the consequences of it? And it turned out that it was sort of the perfect place to end the book because this is a book. This is an origin story book. I'm hoping to write another volume uh, after Vince has passed away. And I know kind of what the arc of his life is because Lord knows it's a very bumpy ride and will continue Mm -hmm. to be. So when I do that, I'll be able to finish the story, as Cody Rhodes might say. But. As as of now, what the book that's out there is a story about how this guy reached the highest echelons of success. And he did that by mining his past and mining his childhood, mining his desires and his revulsions, all of that stuff. It was very heavy on the id and the libido. And I think the greater power moment 
to use as an example of something that I was watching as a kid and now think harder about, it's kind of the moment he decided to give in and fully be like his father. And we can talk about that more later, but I really think the Mr. McMahon character is wrapped up somewhat in Vincent Kennedy McMahon, but I think it's more related to Vince's feelings and relationship and repressed feelings, if I may be a little psychoanalysis uh, student here, um, about his dad, Vincent James McMahon, who abandoned him and then was very cold to him throughout the entire rest of Vincent James's life. So anyway, that's a long-winded answer to your question, but maybe I'm just proving that I think about this stuff too much. No, no, I love those. Those are those are the best because, you know, you always find something else in there. In fact, you know what? Why don't yeah. we dive into if we could just get a little bit of what's going on or with the sure. relationship, because I, I think it's really interesting the way you've discussed and framed this in the past uh, in with relation to the relationship of, you know, Vince, uh, as they call him, Vince Sr., although technically, because I'm a stickler right. for technically it wasn't the same. Yeah. But yes, Vince Sr. Yeah. Daddy Vince. And then and then uh, Vince and Kennedy McMahon, you know, the, the uh, abandonment issues that you mentioned. Right. He was raised mostly with his mother living in a trailer park somewhere in the mm-hmm. Carolinas, I believe. And then North Carolina, father, mostly. Yes. Right. And then his father, uh, I guess there was some connection between them. And the, yeah, uh, well, there was a, yeah. there was a reunion um, right. in, when Vince was about 12. From what I can glean, it appears that Vince Sr.'s second wife, the person he married, the woman he married after. He was divorced from Vince's uh, birth mother. That second wife, Juanita, um, decided that Vince Sr. should have some kind of relationship with his two biological sons, Mm. uh, whom he'd had with uh, his first wife, Vince's mother, Vicki Hanner. And what seems to have happened, and this contradicts the story that Vince has told a bunch of times, but – I found an interview that was never published with Vince where he talked about his childhood, and he gave this account, which makes a lot more sense, so I'm inclined to believe it. Um, He said that uh, Juanita was the one who said, you have to have this relationship. I'll go down to the Carolinas. I'll go down to North Carolina and make contact. And she brought with her her mother-in-law, Vince Sr.'s mom, Vince's grandmother, Rose McGinn. And it appears that they met with Vince, young Vinny, and who was going by Vinny Lupton back then because of his stepfather. Mm, right. And then they took him up to New York to meet Vince Sr. And I, I wish Vince would speak to me for this book, although I don't know that he would tell me the truth. But I, I really wonder what it was like for him who had grown up in these really um, low-income – out of the way parts of of North Carolina. I've been to these places. They're semi-rural. They're small towns. And all of a sudden, he's in New York City with this guy who's his biological father that he's never met. And he's witnessing wrestling for the first time. He had, he was not a wrestling fan growing up in North Carolina until he met his dad. And right. then he became obsessed with it. So there's a lot of really deep uh, – Trauma, but also a lot of fateful turns that come out of the relationship of uh, Vince and Vince Sr. And Vince has always said nothing but lovely things about his father in terms of actual sort of evaluations. He'll go, I loved my father. My father was a great guy. 
great man, etc. Um, but the stories Vince tells about his father are always stories in which his dad is mad at him, in which his dad is cold to him. Right. He said that his father never said I love you to him. Um, and until the father of Vince Senior was on his deathbed, and I have reason I I I, I kind of wonder whether that story is true. But right. even if it's true, that means it's one time out of an entire relationship. And I think Vince has not maybe totally processed what that meant to him, these 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 twists and turns with his father. Adding on to that, Vince Sr. had a whole other family. When he and Juanita adopted one of Juanita's relatives' family because the Potter Familius of that family walked out on them. So oh. he had this whole other family. There was a there was a daughter. Well, you know, there was a daughter of this family who was ascent, you know, became functionally the daughter of Vince Sr. And she was about Vince's age. I interviewed her for the book and she had a completely different experience of Vince Sr. She was like he was the most mm. loving man you could imagine. He was all about his family. We would have all these wonderful times together. And then you were Vince's stories and Vince's stories are like, yeah, my dad was mad at me. I couldn't really connect with my dad, whatever. And I really think that just speaking as a human who knows what parents are like and the relationships and trauma that can come out of those parents, you know, I can't imagine that didn't have a huge effect on him. And it's important to note that Mr. McMahon, the character, what is he? He's a Northeastern rich prick wrestling promoter. And that's not who Vince was growing up. That's who his father was. And I think it's interesting that he didn't even have the name McMahon growing up. He was Vinnie Lupton. So the name Mr. McMahon, this trademark name, is just an honorific of male power and then the name of the man who abandoned him. It's very interesting. And in some fashion branding as well because, you know, he inherited the company from his father practically. He didn't inherit it. He didn't inherit it. Technically – he, right. He had to buy it. But that's an important detail to note. His father, again, yeah. did not really – his father could easily have just said, well, what's mine is yours. My son, you get to run this company. Instead, he made Vince pay a very punishing payment schedule. He had to pay about a million dollars over the course of a year in four balloon payments, which means every payment, if he missed that payment – not only would he not get the deal, he would lose the money that he already paid, the previous mm. payments. So it okay. was a pretty intense thing. And But Vince managed to get the money together and bought the company from his father and then clashed with his father a bunch over the course of the purchase and then in the aftermath when Vince was in control and Vince Sr. was just being berated by his peers because they were saying, you have to get your son in line. You know, it was a very complicated, intense relationship. Well, there's there's two things about the father element in Vince McMahon's life that I find compelling. And number one, I mean, look, my family's Dominican stereotypes. Sorry, I got to put them in there. <laughs> like, you know, I've seen situations where you have a man who's got different families and it's like, you yeah. know, the first batch of kids like, oh, he walked out on us. He didn't want anything to do with us. But then it's like the second or even third batch of kids. Oh, he was wonderful. He'd buy us ice cream every week. Yep. Take us apart. Yep. So I'm curious if maybe, you know, it, I, I, it could be a, 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 some situation in which all parties are in fact being truthful at least when it comes to that yeah. there's a level of consistency no, I'm not saying, that can yeah, happen i completely agree i completely agree and, i think it's very yeah. likely that that's the case 
And that maybe there was some I mean, I don't know where Vincent James's resentment or mistreatment, if that was, in fact, the case towards uh, towards Vincent Kennedy. Um, not sure really where that would have come from. But I also think another aspect here, and I'm glad you also brought him up, Lupton. Buddy Lupton, every time that Vince McMahon has talked about his stepfather, not very kind terms. No, no. He says that his father, his stepfather rather, uh, beat him, uh, even claimed that you know his stepfather was uh, an electrician. He claimed that he beat him, beat Vince with his tools. Now, I can't confirm the beating with the tools. I was able to speak to multiple other people who knew Leo Lupton, the stepfather, Leo Lupton Jr. technically, and, you know, you can never – it's hard to prove abuse that you haven't witnessed, yeah. but a grandchild uh, of Leo Lupton Jr. said the one time he met his grandfather, his, his, his own father, who was Leo's son and Vince's stepbrother, that man, even in adulthood, was completely terrified of Leo Lupton and told his kids, you know, don't say a word to your grandfather. And then I found Leo's son by his next marriage, um, which uh, lasted much longer. And that son told me I wouldn't say he was abusive, but he believed that if you fucked up, you got punished. Mm -hmm. So you can take that for whatever it is. I'm 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 inclined to think. Vince is probably telling the truth when it comes to the abuse, he, the physical abuse he suffered from his stepfather. It's hard to prove. And he also said in a Playboy interview, well, he, he heavily implied in a Playboy interview that his mother had sexually abused him. But he walked that claim back. And I did speak with other people who knew Vicky and they denied it, too. That one's much harder to prove. But Vince yeah. did go out of his way to say I shouldn't say go out of his way. He, he wasn't pinned into a corner. It's a complicated answer, but he basically implied that. And then when he was called on that later, he said, well, I didn't say that. That was just what was inferred. You know, you never got to speak to Vince directly, as you mentioned, but you've spoken Correct. to so many, so many people that have had such uh, perspectives intimate uh, knowledge of how he operated, how he thought, mm. how he did things. And you were able to build this collage, right, to have to give you as well a, a unique lens into uh, pretty much what this guy maybe maybe not what he was about at 100 percent, but definitely a much better look than most people ever have had in, in, in terms of trying to understand him and, and uh, find yeah. patterns of consistency in Thank his you. life and in his dealings. And what I'm curious about is now looking at the not just the recent allegations, but pretty much any story, any misdeeds that have been mm -hmm. told about him here. I mean, what do you what do you make of that? I mean, what not I'm not asking you necessarily to make a judgment of him as a person specifically but, but rather, what, what kind of patterns have i noticed yeah, yeah yeah um the recent allegations let me put it this way when i was first confronted with them when somebody linked me to the wall street journal story about this recent lawsuit my feeling was that i was shocked but not surprised like the specific details are pretty shocking and there are a lot of details in this 67 page lawsuit 
um, along with dates and screenshots of alleged text messages. And yet, you know, whether or not the allegations are true, the allegations certainly sound like past allegations against Vince turned up to 11. You know, it, it's it, here. Let me put it this way. Vince was first accused of raping Rita Chatterton, the first female referee in the WWF, in 1992. The rape allegedly happened in 1986, but she came forward in 1992. Right. And, you know, that was another story that was allegedly Vince coerced a woman with uh, the promise of professional success into being in an intimate situation with him where he allegedly raped her. And that's, you know, again, that with Rita, the allegation was it was just the one time with Janelle Grant, the new accuser. It's that the accusation is that it was a lot and it was systematic, but it's an exact, it's, it's a, a bigger version of that same kind of allegation. And similarly, you have the ring boy scandal um, yes. Where, yes. you know, very much in brief, because it's a long story, there was allegedly a, a, a systematic ring of uh, child abusers, of child sexual abusers in the WWF, specifically two men, um, Mel Phillips and Terry Garvin, right. were accused of molesting boys who were doing odd jobs for the WWF. They had this program called the ring boy program where it was like ball boys at a, a different kind of sport. You right. would, you would have them come and help set up the ring and take pictures with the wrestlers, grab coffee. And the allegation from uh, this accuser who came forward, who was a ring boy, Tom Cole was that Mel Phillips and Terry Garvin were acting with impunity and just abusing kids left and right. And, Vince, you know, <laughs> Vince was called on this when the claims went public, and his response was to say that he had fired the people who were responsible for whatever was going on. He told two journalists this. He said, I I've you know, we fired the people, and for some reason to these two journalists, he said that he had – maybe it was only one journalist he said the specific thing to, but he said that he had known about child molestation – fired one of the guys and then rehired him as long as he promised not to abuse kids anymore. Mm -hmm. And that, and, and that's not even getting into how the McMahons worked to squash Tom Cole's lawsuit and sort of get him back on their side. It's a very ugly story, but again, that idea of a systematic culture of sexual abuse within this organization that's an allegation we've heard before. It's just kind of a little more um, – what's the right word? Uh, the allegations feel more viscerally repulsive this time, and I think it's grabbing attention in a way that the Ring Boy scandal didn't really. Yeah, I was actually just talking to a couple of friends of mine about this the other day. You know, it's it's not – am I surprised at the allegations? No. Am I surprised at some of the details, you know, from sure. just a purely like just on, on, as far as an isolated point, you know, a lot much has been made about the, you know, the, 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 the defecation. I don't want to really, I don't want to. No, there's way no pretty way to talk that. about it. So I, no. I tend to just sort of gesture toward it and say, if you want to know more, read the lawsuit. 
Well, what I'm, which I think a lot of people really should to get a fuller understanding, not just of the accusations, but the ramifications potentially that right. this could have, given that sure. she's not exactly just suing him and Johnny, Johnny Ace, John Laurinaitis, but rather mm-hmm. the company in, in mm-hmm. as a whole. But what I mentioned is a lot of people are getting hung up on the salaciousness of that particular aspect. I guess the thing is that I never personally expected that. Yeah, I do believe that he's someone who's done repulsive things. I just maybe just confronting the details of the depravity and the and the extreme. That's really I feel where I've had yes. much more of a a thing. And and I mean, have you had something similar or? Oh did this well, really I not- mean, along those lines, I might as well you know talk about what I recently published, which was I interviewed Bret Hart. Brett the Hitman yes. Hart uh, about these allegations, and he is now the in this article that I published in Slate. He's the first major wrestler to step forward and just unequivocally say, "I believe these allegations, and I am completely condemning Vince McMahon." And that's a big deal because Brett has had so many problems with Vince, and yet, as recently as when I interviewed him for Ringmaster. He said he still basically loved McMahon and that he really respected McMahon. He thought of him as a father figure, even if it was a complicated set of emotions. And this really broke him, this set of allegations. So what I think – I mean the point of the article was to kind of poke at, well, why? What caused this one man who – it was so hard for him to break away from Vince McMahon. What caused him to turn his back? And – My theory is it really was the specific icky details. I mean, that's what Brett basically said. He said it was too creepy. It was too weird. These allegations, if you believe them, make Vince look not fearsome or sadistic or evil, which are all traits that he really tries to embrace for his image. The allegations make him look weak and pathetic and kind of gross. And that's that's much more fatal as a perception for men like Vince or Trump or Elon Musk or other powerful men who are kind of Teflon than being portrayed as bad or dangerous. That just they eat that up, but they don't enjoy being made to look weak and small and disgusting. Let me ask you this. I actually was going to ask this later, but I'm glad you brought this up early now. So. Brett the Hitman Hart happens to be my absolute favorite wrestler of all time. All right, when, you and many others. When I, yes. <laughs> when I when I read the piece that that you that I'm grateful that you sent because I, I wasn't aware of it until you had. It um, just came out, so yeah. Yeah, it just dropped. It's over at Slate.com, and I really would encourage everyone highly to check it out because there is there is you see that conflict with Brett, and he's got much more than that to say than than other just you know the the fact that he was um, distancing himself unequivocally yeah. from, from Vince. But he, I noticed something really interesting. He said that he had gotten a message or a call from you'd, you'd gotten uh, a heads up from some people something's going to come out about vince it's really ugly and he's not going to be able to get his way out of it right do you number one get the sense that brett maybe didn't um maybe he he doubted uh the severity or vince's ability to uh, you know to, i to don't think, i don't I don't think he doubted the severity because according to him, and as far as I can tell, this is true, he heard and then even before the allegations were made public, 
he ran into Rita Chatterton, the former right. female uh, WWF referee, and uh, apologized to her and said, I'm so sorry. I got it wrong. I apologize because he had tried not it makes it sound wrong, but he he had doubted. Rita's claims in public in the past, including to me when I interviewed right. him initially for Ringmaster. I asked him about Rita, and he said, I don't think that that was true. Doesn't seem like the kind of thing Vince would do. But he, upon hearing whatever details he heard, decided, you know what? I think maybe I was wrong about this, at least about Rita. And now certainly he feels that way about Vince as a whole. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just curious also if you got the impression that without quite knowing what the allegations were that were coming up, that he felt, nah, he'll probably wiggle his way out of that one. Like too. that. Yes. I think he did think that. Um, that's the, uh, Sorry, I misunderstood. But yes, he did no, no, think the, that. Both, on, both fronts. No, this, they don't, you, you didn't. They're both. I was asking both. They were about. both. Yes. OK, yeah. got it. Yes. So um, I think, you know, he said to me, Vince was always the. Teflon guy. You couldn't make anything stick to him. And my guess is he probably figured there was a good chance Vince would wriggle out of it, as I think a lot of people did, because he's wriggled out of so many tight situations in the past. But this time was different, both because of the icky details of the allegations, but also because Vince had a boss. You know, Vince made a strategic error if he wanted to retain his job by selling the company because selling the company meant Ari Emanuel is the person who has much more ultimate authority. And although Vince had a contract that said he basically couldn't be fired for any reason and he would be in the executive chairman role until his death, Ari Emanuel is a fate worse than death for a lot of people. So, you know, it, it he, according to the Hollywood reporter, um, you know, he, uh, Ari Emanuel called Vince and just said, look, you have to resign especially yeah. after Slim Jims paused their sponsorship right yeah. for the Royal Rumble. That was that was a, a terrifying moment for them. You know, people sort of laugh about that because Slim Jim seems like such a silly product, but it's an enormous and very longstanding sponsorship deal. So that really put the fear of God into them. Yeah, it's been like 40 years or something. And in, in I, I don't even know how long I, I should have checked that. But it, going way back, there's a lot of association oh, yeah. and they've signed very lucrative deals. So it was it, it was a major that was a major fear factor. And, you know, Vince Vince just didn't have the ability this time to enforce total message discipline. You know, that's historically what he's done is just keep the fear of God in everyone implicitly or explicitly that they have to carry water for him. And this time you had people in charge who were bean counters who have no love of the business. And they're going, this is terrible for our stock price and our advertising budget. Yeah. Get it together, you know, as opposed to every time in the past where Vince has had the luxury of being the capo di tutti capi and having everybody going, well, I have to be loyal to him because what if he doesn't or what if he doesn't get caught this time? You know, what if he does get out of it again? So, you know, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there's a phrase that I there's a phrase I cribbed from a friend of mine. He's from Mississippi. He says, you, f you fuck with the church's money. You know, and yeah. I kind of yeah. 
at this before when it wasn't a publicly traded company or even after it was and he was still essentially the at the the top of the ladder at the the hierarchy you know yeah there were there were certainly more things but now having to answer to Ari Emanuel and a different board in a different time Mm -hmm. and the shock value and public nature of the allegations because no one was listening to Rita Chatterton that didn't really make the news you didn't have these were not stories that were aided by the internet and spread in the manner in which they were the salaciousness of the details as well and the yep. manner in which this all uh, affected the intertwined business relationships um i i mean you know did do you just looking at, at and and understanding uh vince better than the average person him resigning the way that he did did was there anything surprising about any of that oh yeah i mean it makes sense in retrospect but it's a tectonic moment in the yes. history of wrestling i mean the guy's been the driving force in that industry for better or for worse for 40 odd years i mean since he finished buying the company from his dad in 1983 and began his aggressive expansion he's been the person setting the agenda and even if he's not setting the agenda at a given moment the person setting the agenda is doing so in a way that is either imitating or actively rejecting vince but you can't ignore Vince. For 40 years, you have not been able to ignore Vince if you care about wrestling. And to a certain extent, that's still true. <laughs> but, you know, as we've outlined, you know, the situation is a bit different now. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the question. I was thinking about the territory <laughs> war and, and all the no, stuff no, it's fine. about what you asked me. It's fine. I mean, were, were you surprised at the manner surprised, and, right. the, yes. in which he – yes. Yes, I, I was – I was surprised that it stuck this time, but perhaps I shouldn't have been for the reasons I outlined. You know, maybe structurally this was fated to happen, but I I, I don't know. I really thought he would have put up a bigger fight. Maybe he did. You know, it, it's very hard to get reliable information about what Vince is doing at any given moment now because his entourage and inner circle are so tiny and he's kind of become a black box. Right. But I'm surprised that there was not more of a public knockdown drag out about this. You know, it seems like the kind of thing that Vince would not take lightly. And he's still a minority stockholder in TKO. He doesn't really have much power, but he does have a hefty amount of shares. And that's something that's concerning. So for the for the people in charge of TKO and Endeavor. So. It makes sense, but I did think there would be more of a fight about it. I mean, that is, you know, you just raised that point about him still owning stock. I'd forgotten. I thought he'd sold all of it off. No, he hasn't oh, sold all gonna... of it. He, he oh, doesn't have enough God. to have a control. He doesn't have enough to have a con- have control of the company. Right. But he still has a, a significant investment there, and if he pulled his stock, that could be really bad uh, oh, for God. the stock price. So they mm. the, TKO and Endeavor have really painted themselves into a corner. I mean, they Jeez. got into they got into bed with Vince McMahon and WWE, despite the fact that there were already a ton of allegations out there that were pretty fresh. In addition to the old stale ones, they still got into bed with him and did this deal. And now they're in this position where they have no winning option. Like, do they try to distance themselves from Vince McMahon? Well, he could sell off his stock. He could also, um, well, even beyond what he could do, he has 
thousands of hours of his face in their tape library. Right. It's a massive yeah, presence. Yeah. So it's like, what are they going to do? Just delete all of the footage that has Vince McMahon in it? Alienate yeah. him so he sells his stock? They can't do that. But they certainly can't embrace him. I mean, my God, if even a fraction of the new allegations are true, let alone all the old ones, it means there was a real systemic culture of rape and abuse and exploitation that extended far beyond McMahon, or at least was all, you know, had a lot of tendrils leading to McMahon. And TKO has got to be pissing themselves right now, thinking about this federal probe that's been going on for a little while now into Vince McMahon and that seized his phone last year. You know, there's there's a lot for TKO and Endeavor to be afraid of right now. Well, even more so now, I, I just got a message. Apparently, there's a uh, investigation, an article posted on Vice. Uh, there's an unearthed document in which oh. Ashley Massaro, Ashley oh, Massaro, wow. claimed that Vince was making allegations about Vince uh, involving himself with female talent. Um, I, wow. I didn't see any details, but but that uh, just popped up. Who wrote it? Was it Bixen Span? Who? who wrote no, that? no, uh, it was Marchman. Oh wow! Oh, okay, just great. posted it. Yeah, so I'm, wow. I'm really. It's, uh, a, it's an active story, folks. <laughs> right yeah. as we tape this. Right as we're talking, it's 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 popping up, and and you know, and and from Ashley Massaro, who passed away yeah. from suicide uh, not life, too long yes. ago. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it's even it's a more. Dark I guess world. It's, even, yeah, it's a it's dark world. It's a dark world wrestling. I mean, I love the art form, but the industry is a real cesspit. I mean, it's really yeah. bad. What happens? In this kind of lawless ecosystem that has been woefully underregulated and doesn't have a union, you know, there's a lot of abuse that happens there, not just of the sexual kind. A lot of it is of just the conventional economic kind, but yeah. there's no recourse. And it's really hard to be a wrestling fan at times because you want to be a moral person who selects products morally, but like it, so much of this industry is just built on gangsterism and carny folk you know it's it's a weird weird place well you mentioned that you hope to do a follow-up volume after he passes away and my question is when you get to that point what would be the first thing that you want to focus on would you would you stay stay strictly to a timeline or is yeah i think i would want to i'd want to continue like i did with ringmaster and start pretty much immediately i might even dart back a little bit and kind of tell the story of the attitude era again right because the way i told it in ringmaster it's very much the results uh, that you see in the Attitude Era of things that come from earlier in Vince's life. So there's a lot right. of aspects of the Attitude Era that I didn't get into. I mean, The Rock barely appears in this book um, right. because he hadn't totally blown up yet. But I mean, he was a ma- you know that's a ma- major factor, etc. So I'm probably going to dart back a little bit, maybe to like '97 or so, and then kind of tell the beginnings of the rest of the story that I'm planning to tell. And there's a lot of things I want to look at. I mean, it's it's we're talking about at that point the period when I was actually watching wrestling, and then from that point onward, the period in which, even though I wasn't watching wrestling, I was at least more aware of how the world works. And it'll be a different process. And especially now, because of the, the stain on Vince McMahon's name, I think it'll be a different kind of book because I don't really want Vince to be the only main character in it. I, I'm really hoping to focus, in addition, 
um, with a lot of time on each of these people on the rest of the McMahon family, the little quintet of him, Linda, Shane, Stephanie, and Paul Levesque, Triple H. I mean, that that quintet as from 1999 onward becomes extremely important and very complicated, <laughs> as as you and every informed wrestling fan knows. Um, I also want to talk a lot about Paul Heyman, but that's just a personal Ooh, obsession of mine. I'm a Jew. I'm yeah. a Jew, a proud Jew, and I find him to be the most fascinating Jew in the history of wrestling. Like he's his Jewishness, you cannot ignore because he has this whole component of like playing up basically anti-Semitic stereotypes for heat. And I'm totally yeah. okay with it. I, I find, you know, as a Jew, I, I can't speak for everybody, but for me, I find that totally fascinating. Like he's the last Shylock on TV right now. And he has been a survivor. My yes. God, the sheer number of times Paul Heyman should have been out of the game. But he just claws on and you can't you can't kill him. He doesn't go anywhere. So, you know, that, that's a personal obsession of mine. But I think Paul Heyman is one of the keys to understanding the last whatever it is, 25 years of Vince McMahon, because he's been a, a first a thorn in his side slash partner and then a subordinate slash partner and gadfly. So anyway, I'm rambling yeah. about Paul Heyman, but that's something I want to look at. Too. Well, no, he's worth rambling about. I'm one of the most brilliant, one of the top three minds in the history of everything. Him, he's oh, up there with Bobby absolutely. Heenan in my pantheon. Like, seriously. Absolutely. Very, I mean, to call him controversial is to put it very lightly, but yeah. in terms of understanding how the business works and what's going to get a pop, and what's yes. going to get heat, man, right. it's really hard to compare with the cunning mind of Paul Heyman. Well, Josie, I want to thank you so much again. Tell us where we can follow more of your work, yes. see more of what you got going on. Please. Yeah, if you'd like to see more of my work and learn more about the book, um, for the book, you can just go to its site, which is ringmasterthebook.com. Uh, or you can go to my website, which has a bunch more stuff, including the book, and that is josie.zone. So that's J-O-S-I-E dot Z-O-N-E. Fantastic. Josie Reisman, everybody, thank you again for joining us. And uh, I'm really looking forward to see what you've got next. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcast and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey Not the Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection main card and prelims UFC preview shows, the sixth round post-fight show, the Show Money podcast, and the MMA depressed us. <laughs>